Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you remind us that from heaven you are looking to bless those whose, who display an attitude of submissive submissiveness in their spirit, broken in spirit, or contrite, and most importantly, who tremble at your word. As you look down upon this assembly this morning, I pray that you would find every single one of us display that kind of a heart attitude, that we're convicted of our sins, and at the same time, we're also comforted by the grace you shower upon us. But we look to you to produce within us a sense of trembling at your word. These are not idle words. These are our very life. Your word is truth. Help us to come under the authority of the scriptures because that's the same as coming under your authority. Would you please do these things in every single heart that is present here? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Subject we're going to be looking at this morning deals with the God who calls and promises. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 as we continue our survey through uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, we've now come to a very important section in Genesis, a section that starts with a call from God that includes many rich promises that not only impacted one man, Abraham, but also one that has impact on all humanity. Through Abraham, or Abram at this point, that's his name, until God changes his, changes his name later to Abraham, we find God in a major way starting to reverse all that went wrong due to Adam and Eve's disobedience and their subsequent expulsion from the garden itself. You see, Adam and Eve's disobedience resulted in judgment, cursing, and death. Now, Abram's obedience would bring about blessing, blessing for generations to come. So in our time together today, we're going to survey the fascinating life of this one man, this uh, spiritual giant to whom uh, we owe so much. And this is the way we're going to survey his life because of the vastness of the material that uh, we're going to be covering. In fact, 25% of the book of Genesis is given to the life of Abraham and 25% later to Joseph and close to that to the life of uh, Jacob. Uh, we're going to survey his life from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis um, uh, 25. Uh, we're going to see, first of all, the sections that pertain to Abraham being a great man of faith who exercised great obedience. And then we'll see those sections that pertain to Abraham, despite being a man of great faith, on occasions showed that he was still a sinner prone to failures. And then this is this is one of the beautiful truths about the Bible. The Bible records both the highs and the lows of God's people. As one writer puts this, Abraham's life teaches us that even though he may be the key to the solution of the sin problem, he is far from sinless himself. So much uh, that hangs on Abraham's life, but yet Abraham is not a perfect human being. And I think that's encouraging for us because God is not looking for perfect men and women to accomplish his purposes. He is looking for people filled with weaknesses, yet still willing to exercise faith in him. Despite their weaknesses, willing to exercise faith in him and strive to please him by obeying him with the strength he gives them. So as we survey this one man's life, the highs and the lows, I want us to be encouraged as we look at his life of obedience and at the same time be warned and learn from the mistakes he made by looking at those times when he 
failed and hopefully prayerfully we will uh, strive to avoid them in our lives so I, as i surveyed verses 12 through 25 actually end of verse chapter 11 uh, and starting in beginning in chapter 12 through chapter 25 i was able to come up with nine instances where abram's faith and obedience were remarkable nine instances allow me to briefly walk through those so you're going to walk with me all these chapters so you kind of get a, a glimpse of uh, the flow of uh, the narrative the way moses uh, records for us uh, the first instance where abram's faith and obedience were remarkable can be seen in his response to god's initial call god's initial call the way he responded you know by the time we finish uh, going through the Tower of Babel incident, we almost would be inclined to think that, okay, God's going to start all over again. Maybe he's going to send another catastrophic judgment like the uh, universal flood. But God chose another option. He worked through one of Noah's sons, Shem, through whose line he would eventually bring Abram into this world. He elects him, calls him to bear the hope that we sinful people human beings desperately need in order to find relief from our guilt. So through one man, God is going to move. Now in a stunning and direct act, God calls Abram to leave his homeland, his father's house, and go to an unspecified place. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notice God's call here. It's rich with the promise of great blessings, blessings of land. I'm going to show you the land. Uh, blessings of descendants by bringing a great nation through him even though at this point in the narrative Sarah is still barren Abraham and Sarah they're childless but God's promising a blessing of a nation coming through him and then he makes this other promise of making his name great or famous to a world that needed to initiate his faithfulness and the blessing of many people through this one man. Six times God says, I will, I will, I will in these verses. And five times God uses the word bless and blessing. In other words, the point is this. God on his own was pleased to call this man, to elect this man, make these promises to this man as he moved to restore humanity back to himself. It is evident here that God's concern is still clearly universalistic because we find the term all peoples. But the means of addressing that concern was very specific. It was through this one man, God would build one nation, the nation that we know as Israel. And through that nation, he would bring forth that one Messiah, one and only one Messiah, who would be the means through which God would bless all peoples. Obviously, Abraham had to respond in faith in order for these blessings to be activated. In this way, both the divine promise that's from God and human obedience from the human perspective work together in a sense to bring about this blessing. In other words, all subsequent blessings from this point on would be dependent upon this initial faithful response of Abraham or Abram at this point. So in that sense, they're not completely unconditional because Abram still needed to do something to inherit them. He still had to obey. And that's exactly what he did here. Look at his obedience prompted by faith in verses 4 through 5. So, God commands in verses 1 through 3, this is what you need to do. This is a radical call for, some, for someone who comes from a pagan background. It's a radical call. But notice, so, Abram went, no hesitation here. 
immediate response. Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Haran is in modern-day Turkey. Sit south. God doesn't tell him which land I'm going to give you. So he's going to start finding out, but he moves in faith. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. He left all the comforts and security of his family and country and traveled to a foreign land based simply on God's word. That's it. It's just based on God's word. And as a result of this great act of obedience of his, God once again affirmed his promise. Look at verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, to your seed, I will give this land. God now clarified to Abram, It is this land that you're in. It's this land, the land where the Canaanites lived. Palestine as we know it today, the land of the Philistines, according to the Old Testament. This is the land, Abram, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants and in response notice what Abram did so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him built an altar worship that's the right response to God's promises the second instance where Abram's faith and obedience were remarkable can be seen is in Abram's gracious offer to Lot to choose the land to dwell in the next chapter is Genesis 13 in verses 1 through 7, we read about a dispute between Abram's servants and his nephew Lot's servants. Their cattle has increased. So there's a conflict between these people. The land is too small for both of them to have their cattle. Notice what Abram did to solve the problem before it became worse. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Notice, Abram doesn't pull any rank over his nephew. He doesn't fear that he might lose the good land. He doesn't manipulate or clutch what he thought would be the best for his cattle. He simply trusts God to take care of him. Unfortunately, Lot, on the other hand, Decided based on what seemed good to his eyes. Even though that would put him closer to the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The text there says they were wicked Canaanites. They saw people of Sodom were sinning exceedingly, exceedingly sinful. He's blind to that. He just goes by what he saw. That would be the beginning of a life of great pain for Lot, as later parts of Genesis would reveal. But notice what God did in response to Abram's second act of great faith. Look at verses 14 through 17 with me. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, notice that, that company had left. So God's now talking individually to Abram. Look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Once again, God affirms this promise of giving physical land. Don't spiritualize it. It's a physical land God has promised. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. Symbolic of claiming possession of the land. God once again reaffirmed his promise of land and again descendants to Abram. And once again, what was Abram's response to God's promise? Look at verse 18. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent. There he built an altar to the Lord. Again, worship. Worship. The fitting response to a God who is so gracious in giving all these promises. The third instance where Abram's faith and obedience were remarkable. Can be, that can be seen as in this Abram's rescue of Lot. Genesis 14 describes the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, and kings of three neighboring places, five kings in total, going to war against four other kings in order to defeat them. But they get defeated. And these four kings 
They seized the goods and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. By now, Lot was living in Sodom. In chapter 13, verse 12, we read that Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. Chapter 14, verse 12, we read that Lot by this time was living in Sodom. And when you get to chapter 19, verse 1, we would see Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Gateway of the city where we're was where prominent people were taking their seats as judges. Point is this, you get closer and closer to temptation, giving into the world, before you realize you'll be living in the world. Near Sodom, in Sodom, high position in Sodom. Lot is the example of a completely wasted life in the Bible. But yet for this man, yet for this man, when Abram realizes Lot's kidnapped, notice what he does. Verses 14 through 16 of chapter 14. In faith and with great courage, this is what he, he does. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went and pursued as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the woman and the other people. And as he returned victoriously, the end of the chapter, the last portions tell us he is met by this strange man, a man whose name appears again later in Psalm 110 and again in the book of Hebrews, a man by the name Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, that's king of Jerusalem. This man, Melchizedek, meets him, blesses him, and Abraham gave a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. And the king of Sodom observes this. So he also offers goods uh, to Abraham. Hey, keep these goods for yourself. Just give me the people. But notice what Abraham does in verses 22 through 24. In great faith, he refused the gift that the king of Sodom gives to him. Look at verses 22 on. As the king of Sodom offered uh, the uh, goods he says for let me pick it up from uh, verse 22 but Abram said to the king of Sodom with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high uh, the creator of heaven and earth that I will accept nothing belonging to you not even a thread or the strap of a sandal so that you will never be able to say I made Abram rich I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them have their share, but I will not touch anything. He did not want to contaminate himself with wealth that was tainted with sin. Yet another act of great faith. Fourth instance where Abram's faith and obedience is remarkable can be seen in his response to God's covenant. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 is one of the most important sections not only in Genesis but in all of the Bible. In this section we read about God explicitly now cutting this covenant with Abram. He reiterates the promise that he gave to him when he first called him in Genesis chapter 12. Follow along with me as, as I read verses 1 through 6. Very important passage. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Keep in mind, Abram's now living in this promised land for a few years. Do not be afraid, Abram. Why? Do not be afraid. Because Abram was afraid. He's not got any children. The land is not his. The Canaanites are surrounding him. There's a fear. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. I'm your protector. You refused the reward. The context is you refused any reward from the king of Sodom. That's good because I am your reward. Great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He was like the manager of the household. He's going to get it all. And Abram said, you give me no children so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them earlier, he talked about the dust. As you cannot count the dust, now you cannot count the stars. Look above, look below. That's how God is using these uh, 
uh, these things that people can see and relate to as he solidifies his promise. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, an extremely important verse in all of the Bible. Abram believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And God credited it to him as righteousness. What makes this act of faith more impressive is that Abram, as I said, has been in the promised land for a bit. For a bit. Still, no child. He's getting older. All he had to go was with God's word and God's character. That's all he had to go by. But that's the essence of faith, isn't it? People often ask, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? Folks, it's one way of salvation throughout the Bible. It's by faith. By faith. Abraham believed Yahweh and Yahweh credited, put it into his account as to having a right standing with him. A right relationship with him. One commentator puts it this way. This renewed faith is not grounded in the old flesh of Sarah nor the tired bones of Abraham but in the disclosing word of God which is inseparable from his personhood. In other words, you cannot separate God's character from God's word. God's word is God's character revealed to us. Because of Abram's positive response of faith to God's promises, in verse 6, God considered him righteous or rightly related to him. And it is this faith of Abram that would later lead him to offer sacrifices in verses 9 through 10. God will command him, you know, cut up some animals and line them up. It's that faith that prompted Abram to do that. And God puts Abram into a deep sleep and in his sleep, in a vision, God comes and tells him, for 400 years, your people, your descendants, are going to be slaves. And then I'll bring them out from that nation and bring them into this promised land. And it's that faith in God that would sustain Abraham for the rest of his life. Look at verses 17 through the first part of verse 18, as God now would confirm the covenant that he cut with Abraham. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. What's, what's the picture here? What's, what's symbolic of this blazing torch going through these cut pieces? What God is saying is this. Keep in mind, Abram is fast asleep. He's not even conscious of this. The blazing torch is an act of God from heaven. God is saying, I walk through these pieces. Those days when people would make a covenant, they'd cut animals and they'd put it on the side and both parties would walk between those pieces. The idea is whoever breaks the covenant, they can be killed like these animals. You ratify the covenant through the means of blood. This is God. Abraham is not involved here. This is God on his own saying, if I don't give the land as I promised, cut me to pieces. Cut me to pieces. And we know the God of the Bible is a God who cannot lie. He will keep his promises. Every single one of them. We see in the Old Testament, God bring the people to the land. He gave them. But it wasn't permanently. That is yet to come when Jesus returns. So here is God himself committing to keeping his promises. That's what theologians call this as a unilateral covenant, one-sided. God being the one that's giving the covenant and sealing it with the blood of animals. Now think about this. The Israelites in the wilderness, they're hearing these verses being read. They would have been encouraged to know that how God kept his promise because where are they coming out of? 400 years of slavery and they're moving towards the promised land. So as they hear this, they'll say, oh, just as God promised, he did bring us out after the 400 years. That should have strengthened them as they entered the promised land to trust in this God who not only called them, but also gave rich promises to them. And God went on to describe the land details in the rest of verse 
18 on to the end of 21. Genesis 15 makes it absolutely clear that without faith, there can be no righteousness. And as one writer put it, where faith exists, however, more and more righteous action will follow as the human-divine relationship unfolds. And that's exactly what we see Abraham doing. He displays more and more righteous actions as we move to Genesis chapter 17, where we see the fifth instance where Abraham's faith and obedience is displayed in his response, in his obedient response to God's call to the covenant of circumcision. Look at Genesis Chapter 17, once again, God cutting a covenant with Abram and promising him a great number of descendants and in the process also giving him a new name, Abraham. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, keep in mind he's now 24 years in the promised land. 24 years. He was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and you will greatly increase your numbers. This is now a bilateral covenant because there was this obedience attached to it. Walk before me faithfully, be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you. So there is this response required from Abraham and his descendants as well. Then you come down to verses 5 through 6. God says, no longer will, be, will you be called Abram, exalted father. That's what the text, that name means. Your name will be Abraham, father of many. For I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Notice Abram is not resisting the naming. He's father of none yet through Sarah at this point in the story. So he's going to tell people, Guys, from now on, call me Abraham. Exalted father to father of many. Really? But by faith, he believes this is what's going to happen. He doesn't care about the ridiculing and mocking that he might face from people. He takes that name. And once again, God promised him and his descendants about giving them the land in verse 8. And then in verse 11, God gave him the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants, circumcision. Verse 11, you are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And God extended the sign to his descendants also. Verse 12, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. And what does obedient Abraham do? Even though he still has no children through Sarah, and keep in mind, he still does not have even a foot of land to own. What does he do? Look at verse 23 on. On that very day, implicit obedience. Implicit obedience. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, born of the slave woman Hagar, and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told them. God, you said, God, I obey. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. What a painful thing to go through. 99 years old. And his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. But why is Moses stressing on this very day, same day, constantly, to tell us true faith implicitly obeys God without questioning. It does not turn a period into a question mark, which is what Satan did in the garden, didn't he? Did God really say, do I have to endure this? Do I have to put up with this person? Do I have to go? Th no. When God puts a period, don't change it into a question mark. Every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Abraham takes God at his word because he trusts in the character of the one who gives that word. And he obeys. Sixth instance where Abram's faith and obedience were remarkable that can be seen is in his intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah. Wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah going from bad to worse. So God plans to destroy these 
cities by fire from heaven. So Abraham, when God tells him this, once again exercises another great act of faith. Why is he interceding? Because his nephew Lot is still living there. He starts out by pleading with God, God, what if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Would you spare it? Verses 23 through 25. God agreed. Okay, if there's 50 righteous, verse 26, okay. But Abraham thinks back, well, maybe there's not 50 righteous people. God, how about 45? How about 40? He comes down, down until verse 32. He says, what about only 10 righteous people in the city? God says, okay, for 10, I will not destroy the city. But since there were not even 10 righteous people, Lot was the only righteous soul. God did eventually destroy Sodom by raining down sulfur on Sodom and also on Gomorrah, chapter 19 and verse 24. But not before he brought Lot and his family out of Sodom. Look at Genesis 19 and verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. Notice right there. Abraham, you acted in faith. You interceded. I'm going to honor that faith of yours. He remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. God honored Abraham's act of intercession, which was prompted by faith. Will the judge of all the earth do wrong? No, it is unlike you to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. Abraham is pleading with God based on God's character. That's faith. And God honors that faith. He brings his nephew out. Parents of those who don't have believing children, don't ever give up. Who have children who are continuing to reject. A spouse that is continuing to reject. A parent that is continuing to reject. Don't give up. Keep interceding. Keep crying out. This God, this all-powerful God, should he choose to, will save them. It is his will that we keep praying for the lost amongst us. You don't need to doubt if it is God's will for you to continue praying. It is God's will to continue praying till they die or till you die. Keep praying. Keep interceding. You never know. You never know. Sixth. Where are we at? Seventh intercession. Says, no, seventh, seventh instance where Abraham's faith and obedience were remarkable can be seen in his circumcision of Isaac. Finally, the promised child is born. Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Imagine the joy after waiting for so many decades. Her prayer was finally answered. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90. But what is fascinating in Genesis 21 is that Abraham does not get caught up with the gift that he forgot the commands of the God, the giver who gave him Isaac. Sometimes we, we pray, we pray for something and when we get it, we forget God. We go about enjoying the gift. Abraham was not like that. He promptly keeps God's command to circumcise Isaac on the eighth day. Look at verses, uh, 20, chapter 21, verses 2 through 4. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Precise. God fulfills his promises precisely. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Again, Moses adds that phrase to remind us, this was a man who kept the word of the Lord in front of him at all times. He obeyed. He obeyed. The eighth instance, and perhaps the greatest of all, where Abraham's faith and obedience were remarkable can be seen in his response to God's command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Look at Genesis 22 verses 1 through 1 and 2. For sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, God is specific, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the nation of Mor go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Amongst other purposes, one of the significance of burnt offering was, I hold nothing back from you, God. 
The best of the best I'm giving you. I want you to give this son Isaac, the one whom you love, the one whom you've been waiting for all these years, kill him. Offer him as a sacrifice. Isaac is a teen by now, young teen. But true faith does not calculate the cost of obedience, does it? True faith fears disobedience. That's why it says, I cannot cost, count the cost of obedience. Whatever it may be, nothing can come between God and me. Jesus said, don't let your wife, husband, son, daughter, mother, father, none come between you and me. Because if you do that, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Abraham was a worthy disciple of Yahweh, a worthy follower. That's why he was willing to give up whatever God called him to give up, no matter how precious it might have been for him. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, no hesitation, early. Didn't, God didn't have to prod him, hey, hey, when are you making plans to go? When are you going? Nothing. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up. So there's three days, this journey. Throughout the three days, he doesn't back out. Keeps going. Keeps moving forward. The third day, he looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Then notice the next three words. We will worship. Just stop right there. What are you talking about, Abraham? You're going to kill your son. You're calling it worship? Abraham would say yes. Because God called me to do this. He doesn't look at that as a heavy burden, does he? My burden is easy to bear, said the Messiah in Matthew 11. My burden is easy to bear. Sometimes they say, I cannot bear my cross anymore. Can we say that in the light of just this text so far that I've read? We will worship and then we will come back to you. Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham had the confidence even if God would put Isaac to death, he would raise him up. He didn't know God would do that. It's just acting by faith so far. Look at verse 12. How oh God honored his faith as he gets the knife, gets ready to plunge it into Isaac. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. See, fear is connected to obedience. Because if Abraham didn't obey, that would be, I'm not fearing God as much as I ought to. Fear, fear, true fear of God results in obedience because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham clearly demonstrated that he now feared God more than he feared losing what God had given him. There's a fear. I could lose Isaac. I have this fear of losing Isaac, but I have this fear of displeasing God. To him, that was more important. Fear of God drove him to overcome the fear of losing something that was really precious to him. At the end of the day, one or the other always wins. Either I fear God or I fear, you name it, something else. Instead of sacrificing Isaac, Abraham finds a ram close by, offers it as a sacrifice, but also he gives a name to that mountain Moriah, which many think was the location the temple in Jerusalem was built later. Look at verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. We get the term Jehovah Jireh from that phrase, the Lord will provide. That word provide is more accurately translated as see, look, or view. Meaning Yahweh, the Lord, will see to it. Ideas will see to it that our needs are met. He will provide as he sees. He's not a passive and an indifferent and a distant observer. He will see to it that our needs are provided. So there was a need for a sacrifice to be offered. 
God provided that ram. So that's why Abraham, Abraham gives that name. The mount did not become a monument of Abraham's obedience, but what, what happens is it becomes a monument of God's provision. God's provision. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Some of you are wondering, sitting here right now, does God see my condition? Some of you come from other places. You're wondering, will I get a job? Will I ever settle down? Will my family ever come? Let me give a word of assurance to you. This God sees what is going on in your life. He sees not as a distant, reluctant observer. He sees with the view towards providing in his time what he has already planned to provide. Cling to him. And others too, whatever you might be struggling with. Does he see my condition? Does he hear my cries? He sees, he hears. The Lord longs to be gracious and compassionate. Later in Isaiah 30, so it says, he's rising up to show you favor. Favor is on the way. Either strength to endure or situation to be changed, whatever fits his plans and purposes. The New Testament writer James takes this act of obedience of Abraham and says that was the final seal and evidence that his belief in God was a genuine one. James chapter 2 verses 21 through 24. And one final record we read, the ninth instance of Abraham's faith and obedience and that's in his desire to protect Isaac from marrying a wrong woman. Abraham knew the importance of purity within the marriage. So he took all the needed effort to make sure his son Isaac did not marry an unbeliever, but only would be marrying a believer. Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Abraham now was very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all he had, perhaps it was still Eliezer, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. The issue is not about marrying only within your culture. The issue here is about believer versus unbeliever. The Canaanites are the God rejecting people. The wicked people don't do that because much less through Isaac. Yes, and Abraham had such strong faith that God would provide Isaac a godly bride. He was able to confidently say these words in verse 7 to his servant. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. And God did honor Abraham's faith did he not by providing Isaac with Rebekah so that the godly lineage could be furthered through them, preserved and furthered. And when, when you look at something like that as a side note, we need to understand again and again, marriage between believers is a very important issue. The Old Testament stresses that as God's people were getting ready to enter the promised land, Deuteronomy 7, God told that to them. And in the New Testament also, believers are to marry only unbelievers. Only un I'm sorry, I just blew that, didn't I? I just undermined everything I said. You'll remember this and not that. Young people, don't do that. Don't do that. You are to, there is nothing called, there is no such thing called evangelistic dating. Don't think you're the only one God chose through whom that unbeliever is going to be saved. You're not that important. God can use a donkey to save people if he wants to. Evangelistic dating is sinful dating. That person is not a believer. That is not a person God has kept for you. Don't limit God. How can he bring someone in my life? Creator of the universe has the power to bring people. Trust me, he has. He knows it better than you or I do. By faith, take him at his 
word. That unbelieving person could be the most beautiful or the most caring and compassionate individual. Oh, no one treats me like him. She is so beautiful. She understands. She gets me. Don't turn your back on God if you profess to be a child of God. All right, so I had to add those two sentences to offset what I said earlier. <laughs> so there we have nine instances, at least nine, of Abraham's remarkable faith and obedience. No wonder the Bible describes Abraham as uh, being called the friend of God. Three times he's called the friend of God. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, Isaiah 41, verse 8, and James chapter 2, and verse 23, friend of God. God and Abraham enjoyed each other's company. Friend of God. Interestingly, Jesus calls us his friends if we live a life of obedience to com his commands in John chapter 15 and verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, when we look at these nine instances, we can easily conclude, well, Abraham was a perfect man. No flaws. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case, is it? Even though he was marked by great faith, there were times in his life when his faith faltered. Let me give you three such instances where his faith faltered. The first instance, go back to Genesis 12. We see his faith faltering is in Abraham lying about Sarai being his sister and not his wife. In Genesis 12, we find, you know, Abraham has uh, responded to this call of God, this challenging call of God to leave everything behind, his family, his land, act of great faith. He does that. He comes into the promised land. But as he comes, there's a famine in the land. Verse 10 says, as a result of the famine, he goes down to Egypt to live there for a while along with Sarai. What you don't find the text saying is Abraham seeking the Lord's guidance before going to Egypt. There was no guidance sought. And notice what he did as he was about to enter Egypt. Look at verses 11 through 13. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. While it was true that Sarai was actually his half-sister, according to Genesis chapter 20 and verse 12, Abraham's father took another wife and it was through that Sarai was born. But the statement was still meant to deceive people here. And the later part of the chapter explains the truth being exposed. Pharaoh confronts Abraham and basically kicks him out. See, you see, fear instead of faith moved Abraham to sin with his lips. What is interesting to notice that when Abraham went to Egypt, there was no mention of him building an altar. Unlike him building an altar as soon as he entered the promised land. But thankfully, as he returned back from Egypt, we read in chapter 13, verse 4, he came back to that altar that he had built earlier and called on the name of the Lord. Folks, where prayer and worship is missing, sin flourishes because faith becomes weak. Whenever your sin flourishes, I guarantee you, the reading of the word, claiming his promises, your prayer life is not strong. It's not strong. Second instance of Abraham's faith faltering can be seen in Abraham listening to Sarai and having a son, Ishmael, with Hagar. Genesis chapter 16. And what is sad about Genesis 16 is 16 follows 15. And 15 is where we see this God, God himself testifying of Abraham's faith. It's a monumental faith. God credits righteousness to his account. From this high point, he commits this act. It would have been a minor thing in that culture at that time, taking a slave woman. But as I've been saying all along, Genesis teaches us no sin is minor. No sin is minor. Look at the far-reaching consequences of that one act. Many of you have fled countries because of 
this one act. Ishmael, father of the people that we know today who follow Islam. Genesis 16, 1 through 1 and 2. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Again, no mention of Abram seeking guidance from God. The narrative doesn't tell us that he sought guidance. Verses 15 through 16, perhaps Abram is thinking, it's from my seed you're going to bless. You didn't specify Sarah until Genesis 17. Maybe his reasoning, we don't know. But whatever is the case, he listens to Sarah, not to God. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 11 years after living in the promised land, this happens. Third and final instance of Abraham's faith faltering can be seen once again in Abraham lying about Sarah now being his sister and not his wife. Look at Genesis chapter 20. Old habits die hard, don't they? Once again, Abraham using the same lie as he faces a possible threat to his life. Now Abraham moved from there into the region of the Negev, the wilderness, the desert, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. It's the border of Egypt and Israel. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. That word is a strong word. He took her into his palace to make her his wife. What are you doing, Abraham? What are you doing? God just promised you. I'm going to do all this for you. I've even renamed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. He is jeopardizing. He is jeopardizing the promised seed. He's literally taking Sarah and throwing her into the hands of a king who would definitely take her to have sexual relations with her. Thankfully, even though Abraham put Sarah in a very compromising position. Thankfully, God himself intervened and saved Sarah. And in that way, exposed Abraham's life through a dream. God would come and warn this king. As God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said, You are as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She is a married woman. Touch her, you'll die. That's what God said. And this man, righteous man, more righteous than Abraham in this instance, says, I, I didn't know about this, God. That's why I came and warned you, God says. And God preserves Sarah so that in the next chapter, Isaac could be born. Again, we are reminded, he may be the key to the solution to the sin problem, but boy, he's one who's not far from being sinless himself. But that's the wisdom of our God, isn't it? He uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect promises. And Moses Ends Abraham's account in chapter 25 in verses 7 through 8 that after Abraham lived 175 years, he breathed his last and died at a good old age. Sarah had died earlier about 13 years prior according to chapter 23 and verse 1. Interestingly, the New Testament when it gives the record of Abraham does not mention Abraham's flaws but sees his overall life as a life of great faith. Paul tells in Romans 4, that Abraham, by his faith, gave glory to God. Romans 4, verse 20. Not only that, more importantly, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the one through whom God would fulfill all the promises he gave to Abraham. I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at a few verses here. Verse 16 first. Page 1660 in the church Bibles here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to see the promises given to Abraham pointed to Jesus as the one who is going to fulfill it all. Look at verse 16 of Galatians chapter 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Paul is very careful in his wording here. And I love the fact that this translation I'm using 
uses the word seed because that is the appropriate rendering here. Scripture does not say and to seeds or descendants, but and to but to seeds mainly many people, but and but and to your seed meaning one person who is Christ. What Paul is saying is, this, I want you readers to understand, all of God's promises were focused was like a tunnel vision. It all like a funnel coming down to be fulfilled in one person. The seed that God had in mind was this Messiah. This seed. One person who is Christ. He is the promised seed who came through the line of Abraham to bring about all the promised blessings to Abraham and his descendants. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus not only secures the forgiveness of all who would put their faith in him, the greatest blessing for all people of all backgrounds, through you all nations will be blessed. The salvation blessings first. But it is the same Jesus who also makes it possible for those who would put their faith in him to inherit all the other promises given to Abraham and his descendants irrespective of whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 22. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The context is what was promised refers to what was promised to whom? To Abraham and his descendants that could be received that could be received to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So by putting faith in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises given to Abraham, Paul says, listen you Gentiles, along with the Jews who put their faith in Jesus, you get it all. And chapter 3 verse 29, if you belong to Christ, meaning if you put your faith in Christ, you you now become a part of Jesus Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. There you go. So now you and I, I don't see to the best of my knowledge any Jews here, all Gentiles. We inherit these promises because of Jesus Christ. All the promises are yes in him. Elsewhere Paul would say in Second Corinthians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 20. Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, we get it all. That's why you need Jesus. That's why I need Jesus. That is why if you're sitting here, not having put your faith in Jesus, you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from yourself and come to Christ in repentance, in faith, saying, Lord, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. I tell you, that's a prayer. You don't need to wait for years together. You don't need to wait for immigration to respond. You don't need to wait for a person to change. That's a prayer you pray. Very moment, your prayer will be answered. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved instantaneously. Instantaneously. God will hear and unite you with His Son. And then you become an heir to all these promises. It's by faith. Abraham got a right standing with God. It's by faith. We all get a right standing with God through Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us so that we can live, pursue this life of faith in God's promises and commit ourselves to a life of obedience. And when we fail, we go back to the altar, so to speak. We go back. We confess our sins. Go back and start again. The Christian life as a I've said it over the years, it's a life of new beginning every day. Today again can be a new beginning for you as a believer. Again, you failed last week, Lord I failed, my faith faltered. But Jesus says, come back, come back to me, come back to me. No matter the cost, we can pursue obedience. And like Abraham, we too can look forward to the coming city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11 verse 10. Father, I pray that you would 
Help us as we look at the life of Abraham to see your faithfulness. Indeed, you provided for what we need the most, salvation through your son on that cross. And through you, Jesus, we get it all. But like how Abraham turned his back when a situation required to turn his back from the most precious thing, even including his own son, because he realized the cost of disobedience is far, far greater than the cost of obedience. Teach us to pursue that kind of obedience even when it is hard. But we don't need to rely on our strength. We can cry out to you, Holy Spirit, to help us to live the life of faith in Jesus. Because this is a life that is filled with great promises that are yet to be fulfilled, but which will be fulfilled when the Son of God returns in all His glory. In His name and for His glory we pray. Amen.